Hello, I'm Debbie Krennic, publisher of Newsday, and thank you so much for joining us tonight. Yesterday, for the first time in six months, many school districts across Long Island reopened their doors. A few even started before Labor Day. But starting a new school year amid a pandemic comes with its own challenges. In addition to wearing masks, some districts had to convert gyms and other spaces into classrooms to allow for social distancing. And some teachers are now finding themselves teaching both in person and remote at the same time. However, even if as efforts are being put into place to reduce the risk of spreading the virus, seven districts reported new positive cases of staff and students over the past week. And so some are fearful as more schools open, the numbers will continue to rise. Tonight, Newsday columnist and editorial writer Lane Filler will talk with experts on the front lines about their triumphs and pitfalls for the first of the few days, and most importantly, how we will continue forward. Joining Lane are Dr. Robert Dillon, District Superintendent of Nassau BOCES, Dr. Dennis O'Hara, Superintendent of Hawpock Public School District, Carissa Steinberg, a Syosset School Science Teacher and Master Teacher for New York State, the Honorable Roger Tillis, New York State Board of Regents Representative, and Wayne White, President of the Bellport Teachers Associate and a Social Studies Teacher at Bellport High School. Thank you all so much for joining us. There's a lot to discuss tonight, so I'm going to turn things right over to Lane to get us started. Thank you so much, Debbie, and I want to thank you all for joining us. We have five guests tonight, all of whom I consider friends of the show. All have been on at least once before, some of them several times. And as Debbie said, we're having this uh, webinar at a really fraught moment in education. We started, as she said, seven districts have had people test positive in the past week. That includes Southhold, which has pushed back their in-person learning several days, and Carl Place, uh, which had four positives and has pushed back their in-person learning for this foreseeable future. We have teachers doing remote and distance learning at the same moment for the first time. We have school nurses and administrators dealing with screening and testing and all of the headaches that go with safely transporting and uh, having students on campus now. There's the confusion of A-B schedules and synchronous and asynchronous learning start times, lunches eaten in classrooms, and wondering where students who don't log on might be. So I'm, I'm gonna start off by just asking Wayne, how you feel it's going? Do you feel safe? And do you feel that you're able to educate people right now? Um, well, well, the first day of school was very strange. So in terms of this new normal, um, I haven't heard of many major problems necessarily. But um, I just think there needs to be ongoing vigilance to make sure that all policies designed to keep the school community safe are being followed by not just teachers, but also um, staff and parents and students. And there should be a significant need for patience because this thing is going to have to be tweaked as it goes on, just like you were talking about in the case of a, if there's a positive case in the school. Um, and for teaching, it's like, we're starting year one, no matter how long you've been there. This is year one for all teachers in this new normal setting. Okay. Carissa, let me ask you the same question. Do you feel safe? And do you feel you are succeeding as an educator or can succeed as an educator in this setting? So firstly, I feel safe. I feel safe with so many of the precautions that the district has taken. Um, everyone is really diligent about wearing their masks. 
they've labeled on the on the floor where desks should go, where teachers should stand. And for the most part, people are very compliant. And that to me is a testament to how everyone takes the situation seriously. So even as someone who has a couple of pre-existing conditions that might make a COVID infection a little bit more dangerous for me, I just wanna say with certitude that I feel, I feel safe. Um, last week, when we had our three to four days of superintendents conference day, our leadership institute, there was a tremendous amount of anxiety. And I was really concerned about my fellow teachers, my, my peers and my friends. There were so many of them were so nervous to do this synchronous model. And it was so out of their wheelhouse. It was something that they had never experienced. So as that week progressed, I think they started to feel a little bit better as we started to work together and model that level of synchronicity that again, it's just, it's, it's so foreign to all of us. We're so used to having our beloved students right in front of our faces. In terms of instruction, we've had the students yesterday and today, our A group and our B group, and I can only speak personally, I know some teachers do not agree. I was incredibly enthused with how it went. So pretty quickly, and I'm fairly deft with the technology, I was able to figure out how to situate my laptop with the camera on me. All my students, gratefully, they logged in, they were present on the Google Meet. My students were present in front of me and I was able to facilitate a discussion fairly effectively like um, that would, I would do any other year. Um, and what I have to remark about is how grateful the students are to just be in school, um, to have teachers that they know are just trying their very best and how gracious they are as we too are learning with them. I think the greatest success is we just admit we're, we're doing it for the first time. Like Wayne said, you're a veteran teacher, but it's year one, it's year one for everyone. And that way it's a little bit more equitable and people can be a little bit more supportive of one another. Okay. Dr. O'Hara, your district, Hop Hog, has been in school a little bit longer than most. You've done four or five days. You started late last week. So I want to ask you specifically something that the rest of us can either take heart from or not take heart from. Is it getting better? Is it getting smoother? Are people adjusting? Yeah, thank you, Lane. I, yeah, people are adjusting. Uh, the, the biggest indicator of people adjusting is the arrival and drop-off. We have many, many parents driving students to school because uh, that helps us a lot. It gives us more space on busing, buses and it enables us to provide the busing for people who really need it. So the first couple of days, you can imagine the congestion, new traffic flows and traffic patterns. Um, but I have to say everybody in our community is, is cooperative and, and being patient and understanding. So that's, that's a simple sign of that it's getting better. But over the last two days, I had the opportunity to be in every school in our district um, first, I want to say I'm really impressed with our teachers, their use of the technology in Hophog. We have all students in full-time five days a week, um, but we have about 17% of our students across the district who chose to stay home full-time. And those students that are home full-time are able to watch and participate in their classes in real-time, synchronous time from home. So uh, several times over the last couple of days, I've, I've walked into classrooms and I've seen teachers in their classroom leaning into their iPad uh, or their laptop, communicating with students that are at home, making sure they know who's there, making sure the child can see uh, what's going on in the class. Um, so I'm just really impressed with the effort uh, that, that our teachers are putting in. Um, you know, their intentions are really very pure. They wanna do the best they can for their students. 
it shows. Um, and I think they're only going to get better at it because they're really a caring group. And I, I want to say too, I really echo everything Wayne and Carissa said because, uh, you know, this is new for all of us. And uh, I can tell you from a superintendent's perspective, what I've heard my more experienced colleagues say is it doesn't matter if you've been a superintendent for 20 years or one, this is one of the most challenging times they've ever experienced. So it is brand new for everybody. Okay. Well, let me go over to Dr. Dillon now, who has a little bit of a different challenge than everybody else, because he both is in charge of running the BOCES programs, and he has a certain amount of oversight for the 56 districts in Nassau that are part of that BOCES. And for some reason, BOCES guys seem to specialize in problems. They seem to be people come to you and, and ask for advice. So tell me, what are you hearing on the downside? What problems are people having right now, and, and how are you addressing them? Well, what we hear mostly is is the the challenge of the unknown, and I think uh, as as, our, as my three colleagues have said, you know what, what rises to the top is the dedication and professionalism of the teachers and support staff. Uh, but districts are concerned. You know, it's like anything else. There are there are community members who are out there and making their voices heard, and they may not be the majority, but they're the loudest and trying to put something together, trying to develop a program that has, has met the needs of a moving target. Ever since March, the, the goalposts have been moved continuously. And one of the great things that I've seen with our administrators and our staff is that we put programs together and protocols in place. You know, March 13th, the world went upside down. Our public education system is over 200 years old, probably one of the, if not the best in the world, the best to, to promote a democracy. You need, a, you need an educated citizenry to have a democracy. And so that's that's my concern moving forward. You know, we the, the technology is good. My, my sense is we will get better as we have in the past with all the things we've done. But I want to make sure that we, we don't leave anything unturned as we continue, and particularly in these particular times, to promote an educated citizenry. Okay. Roger, you hear about what happens in 700 districts. You're the region for Long Island. You're the longest serving regent on the board. So how are you feeling about what's going on? Can this succeed? Can we keep the kids in the schools? What are the concerns? I have heard from probably not 700, but I've heard from about 20 today and, and yesterday. Um, I think the, I've heard various stories from, from all. The one story that is consistent is that the teachers are trying so hard to do the right thing and the, uh, uh, superintendents and administrators are trying to harness that energy and it doesn't always come out because we haven't had the experience of doing it. Um, I've heard um, some horror stories about people, kids not being able to get on uh, when they are supposed to get on, their names weren't on a list so they don't get on a list so they complain that and they can't get into the class at that point. Um, people say, well, why didn't they try this out beforehand? And, you know, I think there were three or four days of, of professional development that, that a lot of work went into, but you can't, this is a new experiment. And I know a lot of parents uh, think that it's, uh, that, that it isn't being done the way they would like to see it. It depends on what kind of districts they come from. I have not talked to many of the highest needs districts, and I'm afraid uh, because they didn't have a lot of the 
hardware and, and uh, software and um, a lot of the uh, protections that some of the lower needs districts had. I have heard from several New York City um, schools and there have been some significant problems there, but that's that's New York City. I'm not supposed to be representing them. Um, but it is it is difficult. It is, as I said before, it's like shoveling mercury with a pitchfork because you 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 every time you think you got it, it it just flows a different way. And that's what I'm seeing. Uh, there is, I think people know that everybody's trying, but it's going to take a little while before that takes into effect. And I'm hoping that the health uh, protocols are are kept because. By the time the education protocols get get uh, into shape, I'm hoping that we still have health in the schools. Okay, well, I hope so too. So one thing we do not have on this panel, as large as it is, five is about the biggest we've ever done. We don't have a representative from an elementary school. And it's a very important thing. It's some of the kids that people are most worried about. So Newsday put together some video, not specifically for us, I'm stealing it, but Newsday put together some video about the first day of school at one elementary school, I believe in Garden City. So let's go ahead and watch that and then we'll get back to some questions. Hello, welcome to Stewart and be a good big bro. Buses, backpacks, and the new must-have accessory, masks. The school year has begun at 61 school districts across Long Island. I'm excited to meet new kids, and um, I'm also excited to be back at school. We have missed you. Welcome. At Stewart School in Garden City, a whole lot of firsts Tuesday. Masks a must, class in the gym and cafeteria for some, and a mandated daily health screening done on an app. Hey, honey, mommy has to show the app, okay? There were some growing pains, glitches with the app, and a small number of kids arrived without having been pre-screened. But it worked out. Those who hadn't come screened were checked at the school. The nurse had a thermometer at the door. The long-awaited reunion seemingly left kids, staff, and parents equally beaming. We're excited. It's been a long haul. They've worked really hard to bring these kids back in, and uh, the kids were chomping at the bits to come back. Inside Stewart School, hand-washing reminders, health guidelines, and hand sanitizer dispensers dot the walls. We disinfect every single night. Um, uh, you know, every single classroom, every space will be disinfected. Hand dryers and drinking out of the water fountain, a no-no. But water bottles can be filled. We will be taking the children outside more frequently for mask breaks uh, throughout the day. When masks can come off, the breaks lasting five minutes or longer. In class, kids must be spaced out. And finding space meant getting creative. Fifth graders normally at Stewart now learning at the middle school instead. In the hallways, there are markers like this red line right here to ensure students walk one way on either side. And then there are social distancing reminders. Parents optimistic on the return to the classroom. I'm so happy, you know, because uh, they started school again and hopefully everything's going to be Great. Any concerns about COVID? Uh, not at this point. As so long as we practice uh, social distancing and good hygiene, I think we may even have a good year with flu and 
bootstrap and other things that happen in school. Stewart School Principal Linda Norton says amid the challenge this year presents, the staff will do what they always do. We have to focus on the social emotional component as well as the academic and uh, we know we can do it. Uh, it's just going to look a little differently this year. What are you most excited for today? I'm most excited to make new friends. We're going to make it work and we're going to have a great year. Reporting from Garden City, Cecilia Dowd for Newsday. That was really great video. I, I hadn't seen it in a while, but I'm really glad we ran it. Uh, Wayne, you're in Belport. It, it is in some ways a high needs district. And, and I wanted to ask you about whether you have the PPE and the cleaning and the equipment you need and whether as far as you know, the kids all have both the devices they need and internet access. Well, it depends. Our district is economically diverse. So we do have a large high needs population and we do have a large ELL population, which is another um, issue that we have. In terms of the PPEs and masks, I think we're pretty decent with that so far. Um, haven't heard any shortages anywhere. Um, in terms of resources, because last year there was a lot of money saved being that we were not physically in school after March 13th, a lot of that funding went to buy extra Chromebooks for those in need. Um, and we also bought a lot of um, Wi-Fi hotspots as well. But it still is in some of the homes that we have, some of the problems that we have are some of the students, they, in this sense, who are remote, are some of them are working during the time of school. So it causes a problem with it being synchronous versus being posted in asynchronous. And there's issues depending on where students are coming from on a socioeconomic level. So on the higher levels, um, many parents want their kids to be in school at home as they would be at school. But like I said, on the lower and free and reduced lunch levels, a lot of those students have to take care of siblings. They, some of them are actually going to work at this time. So it varies, but so far um, we got to see how that comes out because right now it's still too early to really make, to really make a um, conclusion on how it's affecting them. Okay. Carissa, I know the kids, it sounds like, are doing a good job following these rules for the 35 hours a week that they're in school or are going to be in school, but there's 168 hours a week in a week, and that means there's 133 where you're not enforcing your rules on them. So, Carissa, what are you seeing or hearing about how well these kids are following masking and distancing rules outside of the classroom and off of campus? So I have a unique perspective because I'm the mother of three children in a, a, a neighboring district. I have a daughter in high school, a daughter in middle school, and a daughter in elementary school. Um, I would be speculating as to what my own students are doing outside of the building. And I will reiterate that they are wonderful inside the building. However, yesterday, which was our first day of school, we had half of the number of students in the building. We have about 20% that are virtual. So we had about a, just under 1,000 kids. Given a warm day, they went outside into the courtyard. They took off their masks as they want to do because they were eating lunch out there, but they immediately gravitated toward one another. And, and these are high school kids. And, and in part, you want to grab them and be like, you need to separate. But then there's that part of your heart that goes, I completely understand why you are just drawn to one another because you've been away for so, for so long. 
Mm -hmm. um, from what I've heard from my seniors is that, yeah, they're getting together outside of school, um, probably in slightly smaller groups than of the norm. And that may be how they rationalize that behavior. But I am concerned that somewhere at the end of the summer, we all collectively took that mental turn where we just said, we're tired of this um, quarantining. We're tired of being separate from our loved ones. And you know, the, the socialization started to increase. I am a little bit nervous about that. I see it in my own home district and I'm seeing it in my, um, my school as well. Okay. Dr. O'Hara, we also have uh, some audience questions that are coming in. Some of them are really, really good. And one of them I kind of wanted to ask you anyway. So I'm going to paraphrase it. It comes from Scott and it's about expectations, academic expectations. Scott asks, have any discussions taken place about expectations for performance and test scores in a virtual hybrid model? Meaning are the standards the same as all past years? And I, I want to broaden that even a little bit to say, what do you think reasonable expectations are for what you can teach kids this year? Can, can they break even? Can they tread water? Can they really move ahead academically? What, do you, what are your goals? What are the expectations? Uh, Dennis, you're on mute. Sorry, uh, great question, Lane. My, my quick response is that, um, listen, first we wanna make sure uh, we attend to everybody's safety and we wanna make sure we attend to their emotional well-being. So we're gonna be doing all these things while we're worried about their learning, right? So um, assuming we've done everything we can to keep them safe and uh, we have all the supports in place to take care of their emotions and, and their, their uh, social emotional needs, um, you know, we want to we want to keep our foot on the gas in terms of academic achievement, right? Uh, we're on a great trajectory in Hupog. We think our students are very very capable. Uh, in fact, I know they're capable. I know our teachers are very capable. I know the families are supportive. Um, so, you know, listen, we, we have a mantra here. It's uh, students uh, students first, pure intentions, best effort. So this this. Uh, this pandemic doesn't change that. This virus doesn't take that away from us. So everybody is is still going to apply their best effort, um, and we're gonna we're going to learn together as much as we possibly can throughout the entire school year. Um, it'll have to be done differently, and maybe the pace, uh, you know, the pace may be different, or maybe there'll be extra time needed for students that uh, are home and extra attention to certain circumstances. Um, and then, uh, you know, Regent Tillis could probably. You know, this past year, Regents exams were uh, were postponed or canceled, and I don't know where we're going to go with that. My guess is that it's going to be very difficult to have Regents exams across New York State when we have so many different circumstances, not just on Long Island, but across the state. It's so disparate, right? So, um, you know, we always say here, just, just uh, put your best effort in, uh, be prepared to teach outstanding lessons every day. And then the test scores will take care of themselves. So I, I think you're right. Roger not only has things he'd like to say about this, but he has a, a head start having badgered me about performance evaluations and academic expectations for the better part of a decade. So Roger, you're the regent. Talk to us a little bit about what's reasonable expectations of teachers and, and parents, standardized tests, how we're going to evaluate everyone. What are we doing? Well, we're, we're the regents are meeting uh, their first meeting uh, next Monday, and I have a feeling this issues could be brought up. It is one we have regents tests that are scheduled for January. It's not just just May, 
we have to make a decision pretty soon on, on regents tests. Uh, three through eight testing, I think most of the regents, although not the Federal Department of Education, the most of the regents would like to see another moratorium on three through eight testing and have some kind of uh, district to district accountability because th there should be some measures within a district, but it's almost impossible to compare districts, no less students, when you have such, a, 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 as Dennis said, a disparate way of, of, of providing the education. Regents are the same, the same general problem. Um, I don't know how a student who is uh, learning on Zoom classes every day uh, with the same teacher as if they were in school, uh, even if they're online all day, um, versus uh, a student that might uh, get a packet, uh, which we still have some districts that are putting out a packet and then picking up a packet at the end of the day. There's no way that you can get an equivalent statewide, one statewide test that's going to be able to be fair for all those students. But I think it's up. It's going to be up to each district probably to, in my opinion, the regents haven't acted on this yet, but um, that they will have to develop their own accountability systems. Uh, there are adaptive tests that can be used four or five times during the year to see how, how a student is uh, picking up the information. And I think that's actually more diagnostic than the three through eight testing that we've had anyhow. Um, it, it's, a, it's a tough question, but one that really needs to be resolved almost immediately for the January regions. You, you make a fascinating point, Roger. And I think, you know, there's been so much conversation about equity in school districts for forever and ever, for years and years and years. But one of the things that really came through in this crisis, I think, was that schools, we realized, are the most equitable place in the country that kids ever go. It's their homes and their neighborhoods and their communities that are so much more inequitable. And this just shines such a light on that. Um, that being said, Dr. Dillon, I wanna ask you a little bit. There's one specialty that both these heads have that I know has a tremendous amount of resonance for, for people who are watching. Special education, uh, you, you, kept, you had some kids throughout the summer, I believe, and now you're back in full swing. How is special ed going? How are the kids doing with the masks? Are they getting what they need? Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. The uh, I was at uh, two of our locations the last couple of days, and the kids uh, came in and willing, ready to go, same as the staff. Uh, the majority, the great majority of them had their masks on. It appears that they've uh, accepted that in the, to the parents' credit, that they provided that during the summer, the training. And as usual in teaching, whether it be special ed or not, we will probably have as I said to the principal today, you, you better have a lot of candy in your store to get the kids who haven't worn the mask to be, modify their behavior. And that's what we do. We'll modify their behavior, and, and hopefully they will uh, they will adjust and have the masks on. Uh, but, it, yeah, the kids have done, done really well coming in. Uh, the first couple of days, we had a lot of parents. Uh, there was a lot of hugging, and sometimes kids need a hug. They don't understand if the governor says social distancing. So we had a lot of hugs going on. Uh, they went into their classrooms and everything seems to be going uh, very well. When you talk about the equity issue, if there's one place there's equity, it's at BOCES. No matter what district you come from, what zip code you have, when you walk into a BOCES program, whether it's special ed or CTE, you know, or career and tech ed, you receive the same education, the same equipment, the same everything, you know, to uh, to advance yourself. So it's, we're very proud of that. Okay. 
Wayne, what have you been told to do if you find out that one of your students is positive or that you are? Well, what's your process? Um, that's kind of unclear what the process is. I think it comes down to um, the DOH and what they would do in terms of contact tracing. I think that the DOH um, policies for that may be a little bit more lax than we would like it to have. So I know you have to be within um, someone for 10 minutes. And if you're not, then it's not necessarily the DOH that would call you and necessarily say that you may have been exposed. So um, I think many districts, I'm not sure how many, but I think many districts don't really know what to do if that's the case based on the DOH policy of what exposure is. So um, obviously it's a quarantine, but you're gonna have a lot of nervous um, teachers and you're gonna have a lot of nervous parents if they know there's a case in the school and no one was called and it may have been in the same classroom or the same, that person may have been in the same classroom or vicinity. But I think many, many of the um, decisions is gonna come up to the DOH to make that decision whether or not that person should be quarantined. And it may be um, an uncomfortable feeling for those that may have been around that person. So we're not really clear on what to do with that at this point. Okay, that's that's troublesome. Uh, Bob, do you have your finger up? Yeah, you know, uh, and, and to Wayne's point, first of all, you can't think that you have, you test positive. You must have a positive test. And it has to be verified by, in Nassau County by the Department of Health. And then we start the quarantine, we start two things, the immediate quarantine of the person who tested positive. Then we do the contact tracing around that particular individual and a determination is made, as Wayne said, how much contact has there been and how long. We had one recently uh, last week and there were five people that were determined to have some immediate contact with that individual. They've, they've been quarantined for a couple of days and to see you know, what else that they have uh, and they're tested and we'll wait to see what happens. The issue is, I think I've heard several times the governors allude to the fact that we're going to do the testing. We do not do testing. We don't have the we don't have the expertise. We don't have the funding for it. The expertise is done by the medical profession. And when we get when we receive the results from the Department of Health, or the person comes in and says I've had a positive test, then we put then we put our, our protocols into place. But everyone's had to have their protocols. We had to have them submitted to the state in in the first week of August. They've all been reviewed. And uh, you know, like anything else, it's new. Is that's that's the common theme. Everything is new. There's no playbook for this, and we're adjusting as we go along. And again, believe in the science. That seems to be the, the safest bet. Okay, Carissa, you are an AP biology teacher, which means you are also involved in a test that's very important important to the uh, the students of Syosset, you, they, they take an AP test. It's, it's important to college for college credit and it's important for college applications. So tell me what happened with your students' AP biology tests last year and what are you telling them the expectation is this year? That is a great question and it's exactly the one I wanted to answer. Awesome. So um, last year, the AP exams, all of them were amended significantly. Uh, the, the tests were cut down. They're normally about three hours. They consist of two parts. Um, they're in person. It's a very high stakes exam. Not only does this help kids get into college, but kids can get um, college credit. And they can actually save a whole year of instruction in that um, 
post high school education. So it was all online. And you know, I commend anyone who tries to do something new, who tries to do something to make it better. It wasn't a uniform experience. Some kids did fairly well doing their uh, doing their test and submitting it. There were other kids that missed the submission by seven seconds. And that was it, they, their opportunity was lost because there were just so many issues. In terms of this year, that's what I really wanted to talk about, these assessments. They hang over some of the teachers' heads because there is so much uncertainty. Do we, do we have to prepare them for this test, which has been part of education for decades? If these tests were to change, and if they were to uncouple from our instruction, imagine the freedom that teachers and therefore students could have. You know, I think about this. I mean, a global pandemic is just awful and it will shape all of our lives, but might this be a forced opportunity to rethink education and rethink how we assess these children. We, there's no way we can test them in the way that we have always done so traditionally. Because even at Hophog, um, right, in Denny's um, district, 17% are at home. How can you give a good and, and secure test if you have even a portion of kids who are never in the building? So we have to, it's a whole paradigm shift. And so might we then say, what, it, what is really the essence of education? Is it to become these great test takers? And I know that's a summative assessment to what they've learned, but might it be an opportunity for us to say, you know what's more valuable than test taking, than that didactic form of learning? Maybe it's being creating these creative thinkers that are so innovative, that are engaged, that have these experiential opportunities to grow and develop. Maybe we are trying to raise students who are unafraid to question and wonder instead of always memorizing facts. Maybe we have kids who can apply themselves, think creatively, design something. Maybe that's the future this country needs. And maybe when we take away the weight of those assessments that bear down on us, that take away from our instruction, maybe when we uncouple, maybe we can free these kids and empower them to really guide their own learning because that's where we've wanted to go for years but we've been held back so maybe this is the time to try it how would we decide who had earned college credit via your class so i think i think a lot of teachers and administrators have to agree that already two days in or a weekend 2020 2021 has an asterisk on it just like 20, 2019, 2020 did. What, what are we gonna do? Like, And you're right, there is such disparity between districts. So all we can do is provide these kids with great instruction. It's, it seems like the college board is already starting to winnow away from some of these exams. We have to maybe um, provide evidence and, and a lot of formative assessments that these kids are meeting milestones, they are growing. It's just assessments done in a different way. And perhaps to alleviate the anxiety of all the teachers out there who are like, oh my God, this woman is telling me I have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. I promise you most teachers are doing this right now. We just have not graded it. We just did not see that as an assessment. It was just more participation. So, you know, whether or not college is accepted, that's another story. But I think we can make the evidence that they should. Okay. Dr. O'Hara. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I teach AP US history um, as well. So with saying that in terms of this year, pretty much is history. I agree with Carissa on in terms of getting ready for that examination because pretty much all teachers 
you know, want their students to succeed. That's just, they, that's just, that's case one. So therefore, wanting our students to succeed and think on their own is a priority for us. And with rethinking education in terms of the college board exams, um, that would be a primary goal that we could actually look at it, that we could teach the whole student rather than teach kids how to take the test. So as I'm teaching AP US history, I'm already a month behind because, not because of the pandemic, because usually other schools start in August. But if we had that option to kind of teach with some form of assessment that proves that they learned something for them to think more on their feet, which I think everyone needs to do now, I think that would be a positive mood move for testing to be project-based and also um, centered around the child and their experience. Are you saying just I don't think I've ever heard this before. Are you saying that New York students are always at a disadvantage in AP testing because our schools start so late in September as opposed to like in South Carolina where it's very early August? Yes. Wow, I've never heard Absolutely. that. That's fascinating. I, 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 I usually I, my summer assignment is what catches them up. So they have a summer oh. assignment for me that kind of catches them up, but it's not physical teaching. They have to do it on their own and then I have to go back to it. But yes. We have those weeks that we're behind because the test is in early May rather than the regents being in mid-June. Okay, I feel like we're breaking news here, although it's probably something everybody but me knew. Um, <laughs> Dr. O'Hara, I wanna come to you with the two easiest questions you can imagine, sports and money. So first of all, tell me how Hopog is looking at budgeting. I know you're spending a lot and I know there's worries that uh, state aid could be cut as much as 20%, which would have a significant impact on the, the finances of a district like Hop Hog. So tell me how you're thinking about money right now. Uh, Elena, you know, I think we're very much like like districts all across Long Island where we um, put a hold on as much spending as possible. In Hop Hog, um, because school was closed and we didn't have spring sports and we didn't have overtime and we didn't buy paper towels and, uh, you know, we had lower uh, utility costs. We, we, uh, we, there was about $5 million we anticipated spending that we didn't, all right? So we've used some of that money to put it into reserves. And uh, obviously we're using some of that money to make sure we have enough PPE. And uh, we also used some of that money to bring back some teachers so we could break some sections and be able to socially distance students. Uh, that, that enabled us to have everybody in full time. Um, you know, so going forward, we have to watch everything very carefully. Um, so, some, some things are on hold, uh, till we see how the year develops and, and where the needs arise. Um, those are the basics. And I don't think that's unique to Hop Hog. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about sports now. This is different from county to county and in some ways from school to school. So tell me what Hop Hog is doing in terms of sports and are you comfortable with it? Oh, gee. Um, you know, I don't know where my comfort level is with sports, to, to be uh, honest with all of you. Um, it's a tricky thing. You know, in, in high school and college, uh, I was an athlete, a student athlete. So uh, I have four sons that were all student athletes. So it's something that we're very interested in. And, and I want to see all of our student athletes have the opportunity to practice and compete. So we, we definitely want to help them with that. Um, there's a meeting tomorrow morning with athletic directors uh, in Suffolk County, 
So they're going to be discussing that right now in Suffolk County. We have some sports, cross country, uh, soccer, um, I think swimming scheduled to begin uh, September 21st. Uh, fall sports like football and volleyball can practice only, but no competition. So um, it's a tricky thing and, and we just have to keep having discussions and continue to evaluate it. Okay. You know, I don't Roger. see, uh, sorry, I, you know, I have concerns about winter sports like basketball and wrestling. I don't, I don't, you know, I mean, we have to keep people six feet apart with a mask on. I don't see how we could have wrestling and basketball, things like that in the winter. So we're just going to have to keep following the science like we were talking about before the show started and, 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 and do what reasonable and prudent people would do and make our decisions closer to the time with the, with the most current information. While we're talking about Bob, I'm going to come right to you. I swear I'm going to talk about it. But Dennis, while I'm talking to you and you're talking about believing in the science and people being reasonable, are you in Hopog seeing among the parents or any of the students a politicization of mask wearing and distancing that's making it harder to achieve your goals? Uh, no, no, I haven't. I haven't observed it directly. Um, you know, we we've received um, a very small number of emails or letters from parents who are opposed to masks, uh, face face coverings during the school day. Mm -hmm. um, but n nobody's reached out to us in terms of um, a political stance. And uh, like like my colleagues Wayne and Carissa said earlier, the the students ha have been extremely uh, cooperative and. Uh, really handling it better in many cases than us adults, mm -hmm. to be honest with you. So, um, you know, I watched, I watched elementary school students today. We have, we have, uh, Carissa mentioned, we have lines on the floor. We have dots where they stand. We have things to remind everybody about six feet apart. These youngsters, they wouldn't even, they were coming down a stairwell and, and able to turn left at the bottom step. And they wouldn't even, they wouldn't even cut a corner. Uh, the, the line extended about three feet beyond the last step and they all went straight and made a, made a 90 degree left-hand turn because they're working so hard uh, to do the right thing. And, and in our, in our high school, um, you know, they're a little bit bigger. It's, it's, it, it's unnatural for them to be six feet apart. And, mm -hmm. and so um, I think sometimes they, they forget where they are, um, but there too, the students, the students are really, working hard to cooperate and, and stay to the right of the hallways and not congregate and not get bunched up. So uh, that was a long-winded answer to your question. I haven't seen any pol politicization of... Uh... I appreciate it. It was a tough question. Bob, talk to me. What do you got to say? Yeah, you know, you know we, talked, we talked about the sports. We would be remiss if we did not comment on the arts, mm -hmm. if we did not comment on, on, on our orchestra, uh, on our bands, on our theater. Uh, and, and, you know, the fine arts that Long Island schools excel in. And I know it's close to Roger's heart there. And, and uh, that, that's, a, that's a problem, how we're going to move with that. I mean, we have a warming high school for Long Island High School for the Arts. And we're dealing with that now. But schools have to deal with it. There is a strong uh, parental support for the arts on Long Island. And, you know, though we talk about sports, uh, you know, the, the musicians are, are right there, one in equal footing with them. And we have to come up with some sort of strategies to address those particular issues. Okay. Roger, while we're talking about that, I know you want to talk about that, but I also want yeah. to address. OK, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I want to talk about that just briefly. Uh, there, there are uh, arts programs being developed for online um, uh, work. 
And I know the Tilda Center is uh, is working very diligently with other arts educators across the, the both counties to bring some of the programs into the schools so that they're not completely devoid of, of arts. It, it's going to be tough, though, because a lot of that is hands-on uh, teaching. I, I have a real concern that hasn't been addressed here, I don't think, and that is we, we talked a little about equity before. Our schools are, are hardly equitable before this pandemic began. Um, we, we have some of the most segregated schools um, in the country on Long Island. And the segregation usually um, is, is not just racial, but economic. And the resources for the kids in those districts is far less than the resources in a lot of other districts. Um, I represent them all, so it's it's hard for me to try to take one side or another. But uh, the the state aid cuts and the lack of money that districts have, if the cuts are made across the board equally, twenty percent. Let's say the, the governor's plan goes through, um, it can't be done equally. There are districts like like mine in Great Neck uh, or Manhasset that have very little um, state aid coming, 5%, 4%. So a 20% cut for them is less than 1% of their budget. And you go to, to Hempstead or Roosevelt and, and it's over 50% comes from state aid. 20% cut from them is 10 to 15% of their budget. It's It, it, it will expand the inequality yeah to a much greater degree than it is now. And even teaching, if, if, all, if all resources were equal, um, the, the difference between districts being able to uh, do certain kinds of things and other, other districts not, um, even, even that will create a greater inequality. And, and it's, it's uh, I mean, for me, it's heartbreaking because I go visit a lot of schools and a lot of different schools and you see the difference between some of the, the highest need school districts versus those that are right next door to them, um, that, that where there is no, there's no need or very little need at all. And right. it's the, the difference in their education quality is stark. And, and how, who is, what are you doing about it in terms of, have you been empowered to yell at the governor? Are the regents addressing the assembly and, and the Senate? And what is it that you want? I mean, yeah. What's I'm hoping that the regents will take uh, action. We can't take action to do anything. All we can do is to advocate. And, and I'm hoping that this issue and other issues of equity will come up on Monday when we meet because uh, they've become very apparent. Another one is, is we have to change certification requirements to make, to make more flexibility for districts because there aren't going to be enough teachers very shortly if, if there aren't right now. Um, we've got to make some, without giving up standards, we've mm -hmm. got to make some flexibility. Uh, okay. The same thing with bus drivers. I mean, there are a lot of things that's what the regions can do, and uh, hopefully we will. Okay, let me go to Carissa wants to say something, and then I'll go to Bob, I swear. Carissa. Thank you. Um, I'm Right now, I'm, I have the pleasure of serving as the mentor coordinator at Syosset High School, and it's been a wonderful experience for me. And it was born out of being in the master teacher program where I work with the most incredible human beings in this throughout of educators throughout the island. And I'm even able to teach methods courses um, or visit um, Stony Brook. And I'm in an administrative course now. I'm so concerned 
about the future of this profession. I don't see a bench. And what scares me, and to go to Roger's point, I am at Syosset. I'm the first one to tell you that I am blessed. It was my first interview. I only, I only knew Syosset from the LARR. It was a stop that I went by when I went to the city. So, you know, I landed really well, very propitiously. What I'm concerned about is that we are not fostering a generation of, of students who aspire to be teachers. And we could go and have a whole conversation about, you know, the, the great recession of, 2000, of 2008. We could talk about the Roslyn scandal. There were so many things that conflate, but the, the, the lack of future teachers is really a massive concern. When you start to look at teacher preparation programs throughout New York State, they're just not there. They're not there for high school. They're not there for math and science. And that's one of the things that concerns me. So that's something that we really need to look forward to and we have to address. They're down, 50, years, they're down 50% in the last nine years, the education schools. Okay. Yeah, they're just they're just not there. And that's and that's something we need to talk about too. All right, so we've definitely found at least the next three topics for the next three webinars tonight. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Dylan, what is it you'd like to tell me, sir? You know, you know, to Roger's point, you know, I'd like I'd like to meet you put a put a point on it. When you do these cuts, there are people in programs, there are opportunities. There they these types of cuts cannot be done with paper and pencil. And to the teachers, we need some some thinking outside the box. Recently in the spring. There were a bunch of, uh, I believe, interns, medical interns who were advanced and put out in the field because of the need. I'm going to suggest and talk to Roger and the other regions, my colleagues, that we need to look at our student teachers who are ready. Maybe we accelerate them out into the field. We have to look at EdTPA, which is a process where we certify teachers. We've made it onerous for people with limited incomes because of the cost of, has become prohibitive. We've put more barriers in front of people to become teachers. I know in National Postage, we sent the recruiting, we send buses into New York City to bring them out to the suburbs to see what it's like. Uh, we're working with today's, tomorrow's teachers in an effort to encourage high school kids to think about going into teaching. But right now, we have too, too many obstacles in front of them that make it easier to say, no, I don't want to go into teaching, I'll go into something else. And publicity-wise, uh, teachers, you know, years ago, and not until, not until recently, not until the pandemic, have, have they been appreciated as much as they are today? You know, this, and we talk about things that change. We may be looking at the end of the agrarian calendar with the fact that we can do virtual teaching. There's no reason, if we need to start earlier, we should start earlier, but we've been limited by the agrarian calendar and that needs to be questioned. All right, so we've been talking a lot about policy and it's about time for me to get us out of here. We're running a little bit over, but there's one more question I wanted to ask because this is about kids and people. And I wanted to ask it of first Wayne and then Carissa and then, then we'll get out of here. Wayne, yesterday when school started and you were in your classroom and the kids first walked in, what did you feel? What thoughts went through your head? Actually, I had a good feeling of being back in the classroom, even as strange as it felt. That's something that I love to, to be is to be with the kids. So the joy of it, even though we have two different um, cohorts, the joy of being back doing what I was doing was actually just stood out. And it was very um, comforting to me that me and the kids, we were all in the same boat together. So it was a good feeling at that moment, as strange as it may have been. I'm a teacher and I love what I do. And so going back in the classroom since March 13th was a joy to me.
regardless of everything else, it was actually a joy. All right, Carissa, you tell me, what, what was your heart? I echo what Wayne says. The, it is a joy and a privilege to be a teacher. And um, in the last moment that I live on this earth, I will be so grateful that I served my community this way. I, my, it was amazing. It was amazing to see their faces. I wish I could hug my seniors from last year. What I loved about it was just constantly asking, how are you doing? Is this working for you guys? And what we have to remember is just to be flexible. First, to be compassionate with ourselves, that we're not all experts at this. We're all learning, parents, teachers, administrators, students. And then we have to be mindful that what works today may not work in two weeks. But what I can always do every day, and I can do it really well, is I can say, how are you doing? And what can I do to make it better? And if we have just that, then I think that we can be successful this year. Okay. Well, you said, both of you, that it's a joy and a privilege to be educators. For me today, it was both a joy and a privilege to spend an hour talking to educators. I want to thank you all so much for joining us and giving so much uh, just wisdom and, and value, and, and it was just wonderful to have you. I also want to thank the people that help us put this show together behind the scenes. That today was Melissa Carfero, Kim Como, T.C. McCarthy, Jacqueline Robbins, Steve Morris, and Mark Domofsky. And with that, I hope you all have a great evening. And I'm going to throw it back to Debbie Krennic. Good night, everybody. Thanks Thank so you. From listening to all of you, it sounds like the year ahead will have to be taken one day at a time, built on a lot of patience from everyone involved. I'd like to thank each and every one of you for being with us tonight uh, and the best as you move forward. I thank you so much for this really enlightening conversation. And Lane, I want to thank you for leading the discussion. As always, Newsday will continue to report on what's going on in the schools across Long Island. And you can find the latest education information and sign up for our education newsletter, The Classroom, by going to Newsday.com. If you missed any portion of today's event, you'll find it by going to NewsdayLive.com. And there you will find links to all of our past events and find out about upcoming programs we have scheduled as well. To everyone watching, we hope you'll join us Friday afternoon for our next event called High School Sports in a Time of COVID-19. Newsday's High School Sports Editor Greg Sarah and Associate Editor Joy Brown will discuss the state of local athletics due to the coronavirus uh, and those on the front lines of it in Nassau and Suffolk County. And again, that's Friday at 1 p.m. And then next Wednesday, September 16th at noon, Lane returns for a conversation with Dr. Betty Rosa, Interim Commissioner of the State Education Department, and Andy Pelota president of the New York State United Teachers Union. From everyone at Newsday, thank you so much for spending some time with us this evening, uh, and we hope you enjoy the rest of the night.